0: back to In the Context of Empire. This is your host, Matt McKenna. I'm very privileged to be joined by the original co-host of this show, John Lancaster. and today, hey, everyone. Yes, John, how are you doing? Doing well. Thank That's you. Good to hear. We're going to catch up on John's story in just a moment. And today we're also joined by a very special guest, my very good friend, former co-worker, Matt Connors. Matt is a former teacher. He's a retired teacher and a a longtime left-wing thinker, someone who's taught me a lot about what I know about anti-imperialism, about left-wing theory, and someone I'm very excited to chat with about current events and history on this podcast, along with our theories on education. So Matt, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine. Happy to be here.
0: So I do want to get into a little bit of Matt's background and how he came to some of the philosophies that he has. Uh, But first, I wanna briefly catch up with John. Now I'll remind the audience that uh, John, the last time he was on the show, he was detailing that he was going to Vietnam to do a pretty interesting study. And if I get this wrong, if I mischaracterize this, John, please let me know. But it was my understanding that you're doing a project in which you're traveling around to Vietnamese schools, trying to get a, a picture about how they teach what in America we call the Vietnam War, but of course in Vietnam is known as the American War uh, and and get some different perspectives on how that extremely traumatic event is taught in Vietnam from that perspective. So uh, John, first of all, am I characterizing that right? And can you update us on how are things going and what are you hoping to accomplish soon?
2: Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you, Matt, for having me, of course. Always a pleasure to be on the podcast. Um, But yeah, so the I think the last time we spoke, I was just arriving in Vietnam and just starting this project. And the brief update is while that was the original plan and you characterized, your characterization was spot on, the COVID situation here in Vietnam has uh, become much, much worse. In fact, this is, I believe, this week is pretty much the peak of COVID. And so scheduling uh, interviews and scheduling school visits has been pretty much impossible due to a lot of schools closing or schools understandably not wanting to have any other outside folks that are not necessary to be in the school uh, come in because of COVID. So I am still doing that same type of objective of trying to see exactly how um, Vietnam is, is teaching uh, high school students about the American war or Vietnam war. Um, however, the method has to be changed a bit. So right now, what I'm basically doing is Vietnam has a nationalized curriculum. So every school has the same, like what we in America would probably call content standards is fairly similar. Um, and the same textbook uh, use, which in Vietnam is, is pretty heavy, heavily used. And so I'm getting those things translated. And so unfortunately, while it might not be possible to talk to teachers, which is something I love doing, um, I may have to just kind of do this through their curriculum and through kind of the resources that they use, but hopefully um, in the next week or so, we'll see a decrease in the level of COVID here, and maybe schools will start opening up again, and maybe they'd be more open to having, you know, someone come in and and chat with teachers, but as of right now, that's kind of where we're at. So I'm currently waiting for some documents to be translated, take some time, but so I'm just kind of in a a holding
0: pattern right now. (laughs) That is interesting because it sounds like they're going through what the United States went through, you know, most recently, just a couple of months ago with the most recent wave that hit here during our Christmas and holiday New Year's season. Uh, we well, didn't yeah. for it sounds like they're a little more cautious in Vietnam than we are in the United States. Well, that's for certain. And
2: yeah, I, we're, you know, their New Year's is about two months after and, you know, the New Year's in America. And the, the exact same thing happened with that big peak right after the New Year's. Um, so, but yeah, they are certainly way more cautious. And, you know, it, it's so funny because I know uh, in many states in the United States now is everyone's going maskless and everything everything seems very not cautious now, um, which may or may not be justified. I don't even know. I don't know the data I've not been following, but over here, it's completely the opposite. Everyone's wearing a mask at all times, um, unless you're eating. You know, if you're walking outside, everybody is wearing a mask
0: at all times. Wow! So, it, yeah, there's no uh, there's no anti-mask movement over there. There's no <laughs> like, anti-mask truckers pulling up in in uh, <laughs> city or Saigon. Yeah, right. <laughs> Nothing like
2: that. Yeah, definitely a different kind of more uh, conscious and collectivist culture for sure that everyone wants to kind of protect everyone. No, no one thinks what. their so, rights
0: are being infringed yeah. being told to wear a mask. <laughs> yeah. Not that I know of,
2: <laughs> but, but that's where I'm at right now. Again, hopefully in the next week or so we'll start seeing that those numbers, uh, you know, fall a bit, but it's real bad right now. So, so
0: we'll see. Well, I'm sure it will get better. Uh, of course, like we, like I said, we were going through, pretty similar phenomenon here just a few months ago and it seems like numbers have really dropped I mean I'll knock on wood just because it does seem to come in waves so to speak but uh, hopefully you get to get into schools like I know you've been wanting to do because I am very curious to find out the results of your research there as well but I do want to pivot to my friend Matt uh well, Matt, let's, let's get a little bit into your background. Uh, you, you were an educator, and I, I would say you still are an educator for a long time. Uh, can you give us a little bit of your background in terms of uh, how did you become a teacher? Uh, what is your background with regards to where you've been a teacher? What have you taught? Uh, and then maybe we can get into a little bit of your politics after that. So let's start off with the basics. How long were you a teacher? Where did you start? Uh, and you know what intrigued you about the profession?
1: Uh, okay. I started teaching in 1986. I was born in 1960. So I was 26 years old. It was about the fourth or fifth adult job I had after graduating college. Um, my first position, I was, I walked into 65 Court Street in New York for non New Yorkers. That's where, that's where the teaching bureaucracy is is centered sat in a little cubicle and a gentleman um, gave me a piece of paper uh, sending me to a school in East New York in Brooklyn, Thomas Jefferson High School, um, where I showed up, uh, I guess the very first day of the school year um, was welcomed and was uh, set up with an entire 10th grade English class program, like five different sections of English 10th grade level in one classroom stuff. I didn't understand at that time um, was actually a pretty good way to start as a teacher uh, to have one grade level, to have one room, all that kind of stuff. They, they were kind of looking out for me. Um, I taught there for about 10 years. It went through all sorts of things. Thomas Jefferson was famous as the first, I believe, uh, the first American high school. That had uh, shootings inside the building, gun gun shootings. Three students were killed in two separate incidents over a space of about five months. We were the first metal detector school in New York City. Um, This was about, I think it's nineteen ninety, if I'm nineteen eighty nine, maybe. Um, And it uh, it went through all kinds of changes. It was a it was a a very poor school, very poor part of Brooklyn. Um, I understood uh, later that it was the product of um, basically how segregated New York City schools are. Um, You know, the the administrations of the the Board of Ed had worked very hard for the 20 years prior to uh, sort of make schools that white families would send their kids to and in order to do that they basically made these schools that were uh that had no white students at all that were even though you know distance wise it didn't have to be that way um so it was a you know a a school that had a ton of social issues uh, a very impoverished student body um and then we were on the, you know, we were the one that uh, that saw the first wave of, of all the shootings in the city uh, taking place in the building. Um, I could talk for a long time about that and just, you know, what I learned about how New York City schools work. But um, the school was basically taken over by uh, the chancellor's office. They sent in a different principal. They you know, the staff was going to all this training. Um, I left the school to go to the alternative school district and went to a, a school that I stayed at for 10 more years. That was, um, uh, in the beginning, had an awful lot of autonomy to run itself the way the staff wanted to. It was a very democratically run school, it was a really good place um we did not give regents exams we were a portfolio based school one of the consortium schools uh it was a very strong set of schools in the city back then and uh it struggled to retain its independence went through uh, administrative changes we ended up with very traditional kind of leadership that didn't want to continue to be an alternative kind of high school and so I have like three phases to my career, 10 years in one place, 10 years in another place, and then 10 years like uh, in the desert, just sort of going from school to school as a now older teacher who was very expensive to hire. Um, and I, uh, ended up in like three different places, uh, including the school where we met in the Bronx, uh, always an English teacher, literacy teacher. Occasionally a humanities teacher which let me do stuff that uh, touched on history and social studies and and world issues uh, Particularly at the the second school that I was a humanities teacher at the second school uh, For half the time before we gave up that kind of curriculum Um, And that's that's some of my uh, My best teaching experience was with my colleagues where we were designing courses uh, that Talked about stuff like colonialism or the Industrial Revolution. Um, and, uh, you know, very interesting, very interesting period of teaching for me.
0: Well, yeah, and I, I can. I can <laughs> well, I, I certainly can, uh, had not experienced the level of violence in schools that, that you've experienced. Uh, both my parents were teachers in that same timeframe in, in, uh, in New York City, and, and they relayed similar stories. Uh, But I was a teacher with you in the Bronx, and I I can relate to some of the challenges that uh, together uh, we handled, uh, given the city bureaucracy and the immense poverty in New York City. But at the time, and I do think that brings us to the other aspect of why we wanted to bring you on the show is because you are a longtime progressive I don't know if you call yourself a progressive, a leftist, but you are someone who has the experience of uh, longtime anti-imperialism and thinking deeply about the uh, modern issues of poverty, of war from a left-wing perspective. So would you mind telling us how did you start this political journey toward left-wing politics? I know in the, you've in the past told me about how you felt about you know uh, what was going on with like Central America in the 1980s, or even before that. like, Can you describe to us you know, your journey through left-wing politics toward anti-imperialism and maybe your general philosophy on how you view these issues?
1: Uh, I'll try, it's an enormous you know, set of yes, questions, I guess, think. and I, I don't want to ramble on, but um, I was born in 1960, so I am a child of the Vietnam War era. Um, it was always there in the background. Uh, I don't remember consciously thinking about it too much, um, but it was always around me. Uh, My small town in Massachusetts had uh, uh, veterans like who had lost their legs that just sort of went up and down the main street in wheelchairs. Um, It it was just just part of the background. Um, I I remember watching Watergate. I think that there were just some things before I was consciously political that were just givens that, uh, you know, distrust of government, uh, very much anti-war. I do remember, you know, at at the age of 15 or 16 or 17, being convinced that, you know, that was it for war. We weren't going to have another war because of how anti-war the country was. And I remember coming back from college a couple of years later, um discovering that my youngest brother was sporting a um a crew cut military style crew cut and that all of his friends were kind of picking up this sort of remilitarized culture thing um and i also remember when uh, the kellogg's uh frosted flakes ran a an ad campaign where tony the tiger was in a jet plane in full military uh insignia on the box of cereal. That was like, I don't know, 78. You could probably find it if you searched for it. And that shocked me that somehow we were, you know, things that were just never going to be again were coming back. It it actually reminded me a lot of what I, you know, I'm a, a literature teacher. I remember reading about the period of time between World War One and World War II, when many people were convinced that uh, there would never be another war after the experience of World War One. And the book All Quiet on the Western Front came out, and you know about how awful World War One came out in like, mid twenties. A film version came out uh, a couple years later, but by the time it had reached the movie version, everybody was like uh, arming again, and militarism was coming back in a big way. And so, I, it, you know, seeing Tony Tiger on the the box of cereal kind of struck me as like, oh my goodness, you know. And at college, um, well, actually, the end of high school, I, I remember reading, I read a lot, you know, I read, I, I read an awful lot of stuff from a very young age. I read uh, Lenin's uh, Imperialism as a junior or senior in high school and was very much taken with it as a way to understand how the world worked. I probably had one good history class where we got up to World War I. And just the understanding of just, you know, the the arms race that becomes, or the colonial race that becomes the actual countries going to war with each other instead of of competing without being directly in conflict with each other, even though they were obviously in conflict with people all over the rest of the world in in becoming colonial powers. Um, that was a very influential book. At uh, when I got to school, the anti-apartheid movement was uh, really taking off. The uh, revolution in Iran had happened. Uh, And of course, uh, um, Central American uh, countries were going through um, all sorts of uh, military horrors. And uh, I, from very early on as a freshman, I sought out whatever campus, political activism was taking place. And I guess it was the Central American uh, organizing groups like CISPIS, the Committee in Solidarity of the People of El Salvador. New York City, there was a a Casa Nicaragua. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm skipping around. I'm skipping like years backwards and forwards in terms of what happened Uh, on campus. I was part of organizing and then connecting with uh, organizing going on in the city, I I went to school in New York City. Um, And uh, I can remember just really feeling a huge disconnect between what I understood to be happening in Central America and what the New York Times was saying was happening. I know you and I have talked about the the reporter, Raymond Bonner, Mm -hmm. who was this one steady voice that was getting published in the new york times that was running these stories that countered the dominant narrative of you know soviet uh, influence over um nicaraguan politics or uh cuban is cuba was the source of the foment in el salvador all this kind of stuff and i just knew that stuff to be just not and of how consuming teaching is I kind of left that day-to-day kind of political activism because I was consumed with the the political activity of trying to be a good teacher uh, in a in a school that really needed good teaching um, I think about that often like what the heck you know why you know why is there like almost a gap in my resume and I say oh yeah that's because I was teaching um, which again I don't think non-teachers appreciate just how completely consuming it is uh, as we record this on a sunday night 9 30 with you having to teach tomorrow morning um so anyways the central american politics was really uh where i dug the deepest into an understanding of how united states foreign policy worked um and you know that's certainly uh coming back to how I'm sorting through things happening around us now.
0: Yeah, and uh, I would say that you've probably been one of the most influential people on my own thinking because I, I've generally been anti-war for a long time, really, really since about the time the Iraq War. I, I can't claim to have been totally against the Iraq War from the beginning. Uh, I, You know, I was a kid in high school. Uh, relatively apolitical, but I do remember midway through college just kind of turning against that war and generally being against war from any point on after that. Uh, I do remember being, you know, as I got into my young adulthood, I had a roommate that, uh, and and a very good friend of mine who, you know, told me about how, you know, Barack Obama was actually not this anti-war guy. He told me about drone strikes. So I grew, I developed a tremendous distaste for violence, but you were one of the first people that got me to think about, well, what is the cause of all this? Like, right. Like what, what systemic pressures create the environment where countries like the United States continually are at war uh, at any anywhere and everywhere all the time. So get getting to think about the material reasons for why this level of violence is inflicted on other people. But I do want to shift gears here and, uh, well, John, you probably can give us a, a perspective that we are not really getting probably in the United States. So with that said, I want to I want to ask both of you, starting with John, uh, what are your initial thoughts? Well, initial we're, we're about two weeks, a little more than two weeks into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, I did a whole episode on the back background, the context. All of that stuff is extremely Extremely relevant. You can check out the most recent episode with Bryce Green. Uh, so we're not going to. We don't need to go too deep into that now. But uh, I'll start off by just saying that I'll give my mea culpa. I I honestly did not believe that Russia was actually going to invade Ukraine. I I was distrustful of all the hype and the claimed uh, proof that there was going to be an invasion the uh you know there was press conferences where reporters were asking for evidence and uh the state department spokespersons were ned price was was basically saying if you don't like our evidence you can just go trust the russians it it really did feel like they were hyping up something that wasn't going to happen it felt like all the other times that we've been misled, from weapons of mass destruction, to uh, Muammar Gaddafi's handing out Viagra to his soldiers, uh, to, uh, you know, to Grenadian, American medical students being unsafe in Grenada. So I, I'll, I'll totally admit, I did not think it was going to happen. Um, I'll get to my feelings on the invasion afterward and how it's been uh, portrayed in US media, but let's start with John. Like, what are your thoughts on what's been going on with Russia and Ukraine? And maybe you can fill us in, like, what what has been your interpretation about how people feel about it around the world? Of course, you know, your sample size is people you've interacted with in Vietnam. But of course, you know, we're not getting that perspective here in the United States. So uh, anything you can provide us, give us a wider perspective of what is the more broad perspective on this. Go ahead, John. Yeah, um,
2: well, first, I I think I'd join you in the surprise bit (laughs) just uh, the, I I was also under the impression that Russia would not invade. And so, you know, seeing the invasion, obviously, um, a terrible, terrible thing against war, you know, so, uh, it's, it's really unfortunate to watch, but in terms of the kind of like the differences, I don't know exactly, actually, if there's a huge difference between how you all are seeing in the United States, um, and how it's being viewed here. I think, there is a, a fairly big, um, which is actually a little bit surprising to me, a fairly big pro-Ukrainian movement here. I think most folks that I've spoken with are fairly sympathetic to Ukraine. Um, actually, fairly recently, the Ukrainian embassy held an event um, to, to basically generate money to, to fund um, to fund the war, to fund the resistance over there. So, and, and it was fairly well attended. So, like, I think uh, there is a fairly big pro-Ukrainian movement, which the only reason why I think that might be a little bit interesting is because of the historical ties, um, between, you know, the old Soviet Union and Vietnam, but obviously it's been, it's been quite some time. So, um, but I think the only other, um, maybe specific kind of difference is there are many Russians that are living actually in Vietnam. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't. I, I'm not really great friends with many of them, but there is one that I I do know very very well, and he is a, a kind of an interesting case where he was born in Ukraine uh, and now lives in Moscow, and so you know his perspective uh, is is fairly similar. I think in terms of most what, what I see from American media of a very, being obviously very against the war, um, but he has a kind of a an interesting story because of his identity of being like half half Russian and half. Ukrainian, if you will um but yeah so I don't I don't know it's it, if that's different from what what's going on in America I hear that it's you know there's just an outpouring of support for Ukraine in the American media and just in American circles generally I don't really know if that's true and if that is I think
0: that's kind of similar to what actually that I'm seeing here in Vietnam yeah we I mean to say there's an outpouring of support it, it's I would say it's a frenzied level of support. It's a it's a without context level of uh of uh, almost bloodlust toward Russia. At least that's my interpretation mm-hmm. here. If you turn on the media and, and you know, I, I do want to discuss some disparities in coverage and like how this conflict is being covered versus other conflicts. But uh before we do that, uh let's let's go to Matt. Like w- what has stuck out to you about about this current invasion, this ongoing war uh, thus far? You know, I, I know you and I have conversed about this uh, separately, but uh, what, are, what are some big takeaways you've had so far, Matt?
1: Well, I think I have to start by saying that I didn't know very much at all about Ukraine four weeks ago. Um, you know, it was it's obviously been in the news uh, on and off going back for years. Um, The whole uh, second impeachment of Donald Trump centered on the Ukraine. Um, I I was somebody who would get I get lost over the names, you know, Uh, which president whose name (laughs) starts with a Y are we talking about? Um, And uh, which attorney general got, you know, it, it wasn't something I was working very hard to sort out. So when, uh, you know, I guess we're talking somewhere in January when the drumbeat towards uh, conflict uh, in the media really started to pick up steam or February, it's, 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 it's kind of hard to, I, I was actually, um, I went back through like, you know, the way you can see a, a the actual newspaper version of the New York Times, you can see a PDF version of that to do the whole what's above the fold. I went back trying to say like, how long has this dominated the news, you know, going back and and what was in the news a week before and what was in the news two weeks before that. And I mean, one of the things that that struck me, okay, I, so I'm, I'm not somebody who knew a, a lot. I consider myself to be somebody who knows a lot more now from having worked hard to get information. And it's, uh, it's been really striking how some of the information that was very helpful to me a week ago is not even available to us anymore. Like the way in which there's been a, a clampdown, a shutdown of news sources, the way um, uh, you know that Google has changed what comes up in search results, uh, the taking down of programming from YouTube uh, once it's deemed to have, uh, you know, Kremlin influence, uh, behind it, whether it's Russia, RT or, or some other, uh, uh, organization, uh, is just, it's not something I have experienced before. You know, I, obviously I know you read about the red scare in the fifties or the red scare and after world war one, and and you imagine like what it was like to, to deal with a, a country that was, just shutting down information and, and, and trying to stop dissent. But uh, this is a new experience to see it now. Um, but uh, I did not think Russia was going to invade. I, you know, armchair general, like so, much, so many of us, uh, armchair expert on something that I knew nothing about two weeks prior, uh, I assumed that uh, what the president of Russia was trying to do was just have something on the ground, you know, the, to uh, move into Eastern Ukraine to the the, the breakaway uh, territories or the, the Russian um, majority territories, and then uh, be able to say, all right, we'll back up if we get, you know, in some negotiations, if we get the assurances on NATO, if we get a pullback of bases from Western, U- whatever it was, it just seemed like uh, nothing was happening diplomatically. And, and you know, it didn't seem like there was going to be a diplomatic way forward. Um, not the same, but not unlike the whole run up to the Iraq war, where, you know, non-military uh, avenues had not been exhausted. And yet, you know, we, we went, uh, full speed ahead to war. This had the feeling of something that no, no, there's there's nothing except military that's going to be allowed to happen here. Um, so I assumed it was like uh, Putin would would do something that he would then be able to sit across a table and give back in exchange for something he wanted. You know the whole Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, dismantling of the of the missile launch sites in Cuba and this software. where he Kennedy won, he made Khrushchev back down as opposed to each side back down. But we only heard about one side of it. So that was my reading on it. But but one thing I will say is that I, I knew I, I, I didn't like it. I, I did not like the way in which we were being um, led to a, a war fear, you know, fervor, uh, we were being manipulated, uh, managed. Um, and, you know, that's so clear, just, you know, I don't have to be somebody who knows an awful lot about Yemen or Syria or Afghanistan, even. But I do know that this idea that, like, we are only going to be allowed to focus on one country um, at you know, excluding all other parts of the world that are experiencing terrible things. We're only gonna focus on one country, and, and if you have a problem with that, then there's something wrong with you. And that that was sort of what went on there for those couple of uh, really days that felt, each day was like a couple of days uh, before the, the Russian troops crossed into uh, Eastern Ukraine. I also remember, um, Picking up or looking at the New York Times online, and uh, the Ukraine Russia conflict crisis dominated the news. And then there was a story important enough to be on the front page of the Times about the United Nations climate change report that was issued. That was basically like, that's it. You know, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> Where we the planet is totally. Uh, shot. All we can do now is make some last minute changes that might allow us to, to manage the incredible chaos we're about to experience. And that story just, you know, it it just sat there for the day. And then I don't even know if it was, if it was still findable in the New York Times the next day. And that just told, you know, it's like, no, no, this is, this, this is crazy. We're, we're like, this is the only thing we're allowed to be thinking about when this other stuff. Is like, so, um, yeah, the, the, the media coverage. I just, I had this instinctive. I was repelled by it, um, rather than informed by it.
0: Yeah, and you know, I'll I'll say my piece here, but but it. it John did say to me the other day uh, on uh, when he texted me, uh, I think, John, I don't want to mischaracterize your words. You said something to the degree of why is there so much coverage on Ukraine, whereas other conflicts don't seem to get almost every any coverage comparatively. Uh, is that is that pretty much what you said? Yeah,
2: I think it's something that, you know, we talked about a little bit of like worthy and unworthy victims of like who are we focusing on and and why. Um, because obviously I, I think it is complicated, but generally kind of like what we were briefly discussing, what we can discuss now is like, there's, there seems to be a huge, huge out, like you were saying, like a frenzied support of Ukraine, um, that to, to a level that's almost, uh, I, I, like, I, to be clear, I think that's great. I think, you know, we should be supporting Ukraine. when you have an act of aggression and a war going on that, you know, uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian sovereignty is, is being. Um, is being threatened. But the same same way, it's also kind of like, why is it like, why is Ukraine getting so much support? Um, and why is the focus so much on, you know, the, the terrible things happening on Ukraine, which again, are terrible and and should get some focus, like we should be focusing on those issues. But what we were talking about was like, there are other things happening in the world um, that are causing so much suffering and, and so much pain and death that we just kind of don't pay attention to. We skim over and it's not reported in the media. So that's kind of what we were briefly discussing.
0: Yeah. And, you know, again, I I have been accused a few times because I've been bringing up this, this point that like, you know, the invasion of Ukraine is arguably not even the worst invasion slash war occurring right now. The, the war on Yemen, uh, which is, you know, shockingly similar actually, where you have a neighboring country, invading its much weaker neighbor a well-armed country invading its much weaker neighbor in the case of Yemen it's Saudi Arabia invading the poorest country in the Middle East uh, which is Yemen but the difference is the United States supports that invasion uh, and in fact it couldn't continue the humanitarian crisis the blockade the starvation the war in which uh, almost 400,000 people have been killed I'm sure the total will end up being far greater that's an action, that's an atrocity in which our government is deeply complicit. So I think that a lot of the sympathy and the demand for action amongst the American and really Western populace more broadly to do something in Ukraine probably comes from a good place. But there's a couple of caveats there. And and one is, well, we need to be careful because this emotion and this outpouring of support can easily be weaponized and already is being weaponized to create policies and get support or consent for policies that are going to be far more destructive. And I'm already seeing well-known politicians advocate things like a no-fly zone. Uh, And a no-fly zone means Shooting down Russian planes, which brings us inevitably closer to a global conflict, a nuclear catastrophe, possibly, possibly. And I'm seeing many more people say things like we and actually the United States is is actively shipping weapons to Ukraine, pouring billions of dollars into a conflict zone. And, you know, I'm I'm just wondering, like, is there a case where you pour billions of dollars worth of weapons into a country and that decreases harm. Uh, And and I'm thinking of the examples of Afghanistan in the 80s, where the U.S. flooded the country with weapons and fighters and training for those fighters, uh, and more recently, Syria. And of course, both of those conflicts were prolonged, and many hundreds of thousands of people died unnecessarily because those conflicts were prolonged. And what it comes down to for me is, and I, I keep bringing this back to people, is like, people's instinct is when they want to support Ukraine, you know, if we think the best of all the people who are outpouring support for people in Ukraine, their instinct is that they want to see less suffering in the world. But the reality is if you're an American citizen, the, the greatest thing you could do to reduce suffering in the world is pressure your own government to stop doing the things that are causing suffering in the world. And for example, the, the, biggest humanitarian crisis is being perpetrated by your government in Yemen uh, the other hu- biggest humanitarian crisis I don't know where it ranks I, I'm not sure I want to rank these things but the other hu- uh, large crisis that's happening in the world right now is starvation in Afghanistan. Uh, millions of people are at risk of starvation in Afghanistan right now because the United States is sanctioning the country and is preventing the Central Bank of Afghanistan from being able to distribute funds. This is gonna result in starvation for uh, for over a million children. Some reports are saying that more people are at risk of dying from starvation over the course of the next few months than died in the entirety of the US 20 year war in the country. So in terms of wanting to reduce suffering, there's a lot of things our own government could do to reduce suffering that the reality is we have far more capacity to affect than trying to affect the policies of Vladimir Putin. So, and then I'll I'll contrast that with compare all the footage you're seeing of Ukrainians now. I'm just wondering, like, imagine... If you had this kind of coverage in like the first few days of the Iraq war, and I I know there was coverage, but imagine they were talking to people on the ground, talking to families who had been the victims of a U.S. missile attack. Uh, talking to uh, international law corpus- uh, experts who could talk about the criminality of the invasion. I suspect that invasion would have been over within a few days, right? The, the people would not tolerate it if they understood what was really being perpetrated in their name. And I, I just did a, a quick search uh, when when I was trying to com- make a comparison from the Ukraine invasion by Russia to the 2003 US invasion of Iraq. And as best as I can tell, because there are organizations that keep track, but even even then it's hard to find accurate data. According to Iraq body count, just between March 19th and March 31st, 2003, there were about 4,000 Iraqi civilians killed in the US invasion. Uh, And that includes the bombing of all the major cities. Uh, and of course many more Iraqi soldiers were killed. As far as I can tell, the best statistics showed that in the first 12 days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there were about a little over 500 Ukrainian civilians killed. I don't want to minimize that, but if we're talking about scale here, uh, we do need to understand that our government is causing a lot more harm than Russia. If we want to reduce harm in the world, the first step would be a criticizing and trying to restrain our own government's actions. And I'm sorry, I went long. Uh, Matt, John, any, either of you have any thoughts about that?
1: Well, I, I'm not going anywhere near, um, you know, putting the, the two awful things side by side and, and trying to say, you know, but this one was worse or whatever. Um, it's more to me about the, the obvious way in which uh, the focus of the American public is um, managed and you know we're only allowed to just to, to be paying attention to one thing unless you unless you make the effort which not a lot of people do and I'll, I'll use myself as an example like it's, it's pretty easy to just sort of wake up and read the New York Times maybe look at a few Washington Post stories uh, check a few online you know, without really really consciously working to find counter narrative information um, you just get swept along with uh, the, the information that's that is presented to us. So um, yeah, the, the you know, to me, it's it's I did that that whole New York Times thing to see like, you know, Afghanistan, 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 and then just falls off a cliff. And there have been like eight stories uh, with Afghanistan in the last two months. And most of them are, are uh, just not at all about the the, the, the big issues that the country is facing or the the suffering of the people. They're these tangent, tangential stories or, or whatever. Um, but here, I'd like to back up. You said, you know, this outpouring of concern for Ukraine and the United States, like pouring billions of dollars of weapons or hundreds of millions or whatever the number is. Um, this one thing that I'm I'm experiencing now is this new understanding that we don't, give weapons to people we we send them weapons but they got to pay for them somebody's going to pay for them and it's not like the united states you know like to say oh how can biden be sending 100 million hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons to ukraine when we have hungry people here in the united states it really isn't like the same it, it, money isn't taken from that to pay for these uh, programs abroad I'm not going to be particularly clear in, in trying to articulate this here, but um, the, the United States uh, enriches itself by sell, by giving weapons, by selling weapons, and I'm not just talking about our military industries, which have a, a steady flow of orders and can expand operations. And you know, um, it's it's uh, there's something really messed up about the standard of living we enjoy here in this country. Uh, being based on our domination of uh, so much of the rest of the world. Um, this, is, this is just, uh, I'm remembering in the first Iraq war, um, I remember somebody uh, providing an analysis that was striking to me that, you know, there was no reason for the war. There was no need for the war. There was no American interest, self-defense kind of justification. But that the war represented um, a need for the branches of our military to jockey for position over who would get the next round of funding for the next generation of weaponry. And they needed a place to demonstrate what their current you know, state-of-the-art weapon systems could accomplish. And that the army was very upset that, the, that a desert nation was chosen. Because, you, you know, the tanks don't work in the desert, so the army's going to come out at the bottom, it's going to be all this high tech Air Force stuff that's going to, you know, and, and just that idea that the entire war was about um, basically like an arms show, an arms dealer show for the next 10 or 15 years of military budgets. Uh, it sounds crazy. It sounds real conspiratorial. It sounds like it's somebody's pulling it out of, 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 of of nowhere but it sure makes an awful lot of sense if you think of it in a different way um, we we spend too much money on military armaments and they're in a world that doesn't need to be so heavily armed anymore we we're missing we keep missing these opportunities for a, a cut in this kind of spending um and a, you know re- reappropriation of money for other purposes, not least of which would be, you know, climate change, but certainly, uh, social welfare in our countries. And yet, the one thing that 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 gets, that never gets questioned is military spending in this country, and Ukraine and NATO increasing their military budgets, Germany, upping how much uh, they're going to spend on armaments. Um, it just seems to be it seems to be almost more marketing and uh, economics than anything else. Um, you know, I think I, I agree with the people who say that we sold Ukraine uh, a bill of goods. We, we sold them on the idea that, yeah, you stand up to Russia, and we'll be right there with you, when when we're not going to be apparently, um, and Ukraine can get destroyed by uh russia you know it can be reduced to rubble its infrastructure its military uh, systems can be all taken down and uh we will we will have turned our attention somewhere else if if there's only going to be a little bit more attention span in this country open to ukraine um and then it's going to go like it went for you know the evacuation from afghanistan like how Oh, my goodness, that's the, the worst. You know, the, it was just dominating everybody's uh, attention. People who don't pay attention to the news are talking about it. And then, boop, it's gone. And that's only four months ago, five months ago, right? September? How many months ago is that?
0: August, and yet it's, yeah. it,
1: it's just gone from the American consciousness. Um, and and it's going to be the same way here, Um, I think.
2: Yeah. Go ahead, John. Well, I think just a couple of things. I think, um, I mean, with the discussion of of you know increased military spending uh, across most European nations now. Obviously, the United States always, <coughs> excuse me, always increasing the military spending it is uh, alarming. Just because, obviously, it, it, I think it obviously shows like leading to even more tensions. And anytime I think there's an increase in military spending, especially across multiple countries right now. Going on in Europe, which you know, I think I think many people would see as justifiable in terms of you know the they they feel threatened from from Russia um, or whatever. But the point I'm trying to make is that I'm concerned with that because anytime you have an increase in military spending, um, I think it's more often to be used, Um, and so you know, foreign policy becomes more likely to just be military use as opposed to actual diplomacy. But in terms of the the news coverage in general, I think, um, I think, we, you know, any news system, any news organization does have to make choices about what do we show on the front page? What, you know, what do we think that people want? And unfortunately I think, you know, news organizations cater to like, okay, we want people to, to click on our stories and read our news. And to do that, we want to make sure we're running news that people feel something about anger, fear, usually the the two things. And so, uh, un- unfortunately, you know, that that leads to kind of what we see where it's like, okay, right now, people are kind of scared of Russia, they're, con- you know, they, they're angry over the Rus- Russian invasion, that's going to be the story that we're going to run. And then once that dies down, like you're saying, that, like, we'll focus on something else that is, you know, that can kind of generate those feelings, usually for for profit in some way, they want clicks, they want reads, whatever. And so it's kind of a complicated situation though, because I think it's like, unless we have a new system, like a system of news that, um, that isn't based on kind of like just like the market economy of like trying to generate as many clicks and views as humanly possible, then we kind of have, you know, this, this same kind of thing where you have stories that are extremely important that that are just not reported on because people aren't aren't clicking on them or are they, at least the news organization feels as though folks don't want to read that. They want to read it about this other thing that again, often makes them feel angry or fearful. So I don't know the solution for that, but that's just kind of my thoughts on that, that obviously these news organizations have to make decisions about what to show and what not to show. And unfortunately those decisions are often based on how can we make the most money it's actually, and I think we'll talk about this later, but it's not unlike to me um, decisions that teachers make of like, how to, what do we show and what do we not show, or what do we present in the curriculum, what do we not present. And hopefully, the uh, the uh, motivation or at least the, the decision making process is much different than a news organization.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that's well said. And, and what I want to say, well, first of all, I'm I'm thinking that we've been talking for a while, and. and maybe we can table the education discussion for a a later podcast where we can like give it full justice. Does that, does that sound good to you guys?
1: Sure. I'd like to say one more thing on the media though. Um, I think that at least from the U S government's perspective, uh, they're playing with fire a little bit in that the longer they got people paying attention to Ukraine, the more likely it is that they're not going to be content to just read the you know, Putin is insane, or Putin is a, a madman, or Russian oligarchs stole all their money, whereas our billionaires uh, <laughs> earned it the hard way. Um, people are going to start saying like, well, what's this about 2014? What's the what's the Ma- the Maiden revolution? What's, what's this regime change thing? What's this about the Eastern Ukraine conflict that's been going on for eight years? And You know, 15,000 people killed there, like, isn't that part of what's happening now? Is that a separate thing? Like, it's going to burst a little bubble where I think most people haven't, don't pay attention, haven't been paying attention. You know, the whole like, isn't Ukraine, aren't there a lot of Nazis? Uh, You know, not just neo-Nazis, but like old school Nazis in Ukraine. Oh, no, they're not. You know, like they sweep away that, that, that question or that charge oh, no, they're not, or, oh, they're everywhere, so it's not a particular... It's like, wait a second, are you sure that they're not? Because I've been reading, and didn't we once have a law that said we couldn't give any funding to Ukraine because um, some of it would end up in the, the hands of these paramilitary... You know, it's like, the more, the more it's put in front of us here, the more I think they're going to not be able to manage the narrative. And that'll be interesting to see just how much... How much the reporters who work for these these big institutions kind of decide to, like, start questioning the narrative and, you know, get a piece here and a piece there. um, While they're still working for The New York Times or The Washington Post, Uh, I I think that's that's something that's also uh, about to happen or likely to happen.
0: Well, Yeah. It's hard to know what goes on behind closed doors and, you know, what we'll find out in 20, 30 years when documents get declassified, but you can be sure that people in the U S government, I I like to think that they're not stupid. I I don't, I don't like to attribute uh, just incompetence to how they behave. I, I sometimes want to, I mean, I, I, tend to believe that they know what they're doing. They just know things that we don't know and they have motivations that we are unaware of. Uh, On the Nazi topic, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of research to find out that there were two countries in the world that voted against a 2021 UN resolution condemning neo-Nazism and the glorification of right-wing fascism. And those two countries were the United States and Ukraine (laughs) I mean like it's kind of out there in the open for us to see and you know even NBC or or MSNBC NBC I forget which one they put an article out last week admitting that the whole the Nazi problem was very real in Ukraine but they couched it in but Putin's denotification uh, excuse is not real Uh, and you know I largely agree with that I don't think I don't think many of us are saying that the entirety of Ukraine, the Ukrainian government is Nazis, but that it is a problem in that country and an influential contingent within the government. What I will say, I want to comment on something that Matt said, and we can start moving toward wrapping up. Matt, you mentioned that you you were concerned about, you know, that you might sound conspiratorial when you pointed toward these financial motives. What I would say is, it sounds a lot crazier to think that the arms industry, these billion dollar industry this billion-dollar industry would not want to continue to profit. I mean, that that sounds a lot crazier to me. Uh, what sounds crazy to me and totally illogical is that the United States is deeply concerned about preserving sovereignty of foreign nations. <laughs> I mean, just look at the, the track record or that the United States is concerned about supporting democracy literally anywhere. The United States supports 73% of the world's dictatorships, uh, sells arms to some, some of the most brutal regimes on the planet. It, it just, the, the, those ideas, the United States cares about these altruistic purposes uh, for, for their focus on Ukraine. That makes a lot less sense than, say, you know, I'm looking at the calendar, like you said, Matt, and the war in Afghanistan ended uh, in the end of August. And it does seem like there's not a whole lot of reason to maintain this gigantic military apparatus wherein half the the military budget, which is the largest in the world, over uh, over seven hundred eighty billion dollars, half of which goes to private contractors. And you know the not such a good reason to be spending that anymore for not at war. And it seems like, If some of these NATO countries don't seem to be as enthusiastic about confronting Russia, well, maybe we need a reason for them to do so. And maybe, you know, if we had people like Robert McNamara and uh, George Kennan predicting that, and many more, by the way, predicting that expanding NATO was going to eventually provoke Russia into a violent reaction. I'm going to guess that people in the government know that that was a likely reaction uh, and continued to provoke them, including um, the current CIA director, William Burns, has written quite a bit about how it was well known that even attempting to float the possibility of adding U- Ukraine into NATO was going to provoke Russia in a way that was going to be extremely catastrophic, uh, and that they knew this. And Oh, and by the way, the to crush the Russian economy, to weaken China's uh, key ally uh, to to eliminate the sale of Russian gas to the rest of the world. These all seem like a lot more likely, whether they're true or not, than the idea that the United States is confronting Russia because of some altruistic reason. I think what you're saying that there's a material reason for it makes a lot more sense. Um and I'll, I'll leave it to either of you two, if you have any closing words about anything you've taken away from the media coverage about you know where you're hoping this goes, uh, really anything that you'd like to close on.
2: No, I think, I mean, again, I think it's always, it's hard to kind of predict where anything is going. I think that's, I think we've all seen that, you know, we all thought it, this would not happen. So trying to speculate kind of what will happen is, is difficult. But obviously, um, hopefully that, that the, anytime there's violence or suffering, we want it to end. Right. So I'm hoping for some type of diplomatic solution simply to end, you know, violence and war, but it's hard to know exactly where this is going. Um, that's kind of my, that's my hope for how this ends. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, it's hard to, to picture where, where a diplomatic solution, uh, is possible um i don't think that the president of ukraine is in a position to be the one who uh, makes an agreement with russia i think anything that i i think he would be overthrown if he doesn't doesn't hold this firm line this you know that he's become this nationalist hero for ukraine trying to basically keep these these right wing extreme groups that overthrew the, the president in 2014, when he waffled a little bit on, um, you know, the whole tying himself closer to Europe, accepting the austerity measures that Europe was imposing and he balked at it. And the next thing, you know, there, there's the, 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 the violence in the street that, that drove him out, made him abdicate. I, I don't see the current president in any stronger hold on, power in the country to withstand those forces. So diplomacy has to be the United States talking directly with Russia. Uh, The European powers are, you know, they're meeting, they're having these phone calls, but they're not the ones calling the shots. Um, It's the United States has has to hopefully be having some communication that we're not aware of right now directly with Russia. Otherwise, I'm not sure where the the exit from all this disaster is.
0: Yeah, I think we're at an incredibly dangerous moment. And I, I do hear Biden consistently saying that US troops will not be fighting in Ukraine. Um, but that gets harder and harder to stave off. Even Biden himself has his own internal pressures and the pressure grows as the situation gets more dire. And when you have NATO troops near the uh, Russian troops in Ukraine, when you have weapons shipments being delivered, when you have Russia saying that they're going to consider weapons shipments uh, into Ukraine as an act of war, you know, one only has to imagine how the United States might have viewed Russia sending weapons to the Iraqi resistance during the 2003 to 2011 stage of the Iraq war to fight Americans. You know, I... know it gets harder and harder to stave off that pressure to do something quote unquote and then once something is done whether that's send in uh to implement a no-fly zone whether that's to uh get into conflict with uh russian troops uh, while weapons are being delivered all bets are off once the first once the first conflict happens which is why i think both of you are right that we need a diplomatic solution i I mean from my point of view I just can't understand why it is such a big deal to just let Ukraine maintain a neutral status even for Ukraine that to me seems like a really good idea and I'm sure in the US government you'd hear well that's you know that's appeasement that's caving to a a, a strong man but it's like all the other countries on earth cave to US demands we can't allow this one uh, agreement that russia has been complaining about since the 90s about nato expansion all they're asking for is this one country to stay neutral along with georgia uh, to me that seems like the obvious solution and because they don't come to that solution like part of me again really believes that they want this conflict that they want to do to ukraine what they did to afghanistan in the 80s what they did to syria more recently and and to just draw russia into this endless conflict that will drain their resources and cripple the country. And the last thing I'll say is we can get more into this another time, but just this bloodlust toward Russians, like Russians as people. Uh, I'm seeing, you know, that Joe Biden, state of the union address last week, it was so belligerent. He was talking about hitting Russia with the hardest sanctions that have ever been implemented and, uh, you know, there's even like Russian cats being banned from like international pet competitions. Russian athletes are being banned from competitions. Uh, the, there are Russian performers who are not allowed to perform in uh, various forms of entertainment. It's like none of this ever applied. There's none of this, it never applies to like Americans, right? And Americans don't face sanctions. Uh, uh, Israeli, if you even bring up the idea of, of not allowing Israeli athletes to compete or, or sanctioning boycott to and and sanctioning Israel, you know, you're called an anti-Semite yet. It's just totally acceptable to support these measures against Russian people that are going to bring this country and bring people in the country into incredible misery and suffering. And I guess some of the excuses, well, there's, you know, the, the idea is that they're somehow responsible for their government's actions. Yet at the same time, we're told that Russia is not a democracy. Uh, so how are they responsible for their government's actions more than we are responsible for our government's actions? Yet we are told that our country is a democracy, it, the, the things don't really make sense. And, you know, God forbid we are ever held responsible for what our government does. And I, I do think people need to slow down on this idea that say that we're going to cripple the Russian economy and somehow that is a more just thing to do that's a risk free action that is a uh, consequence free action I, I you know I think we need to think long and hard about what the policy is going to be and what constitutes war versus what doesn't. And uh, I'll end there I, I did have a lot more to say about media coverage but you know what unfortunately it does seem like this conflict isn't going anywhere so we can certainly talk about it next time uh john any final words for the people that's it that's all i got thank you so much for joining matt thank you again for having having me on yeah john it's good to talk to you and you'll have to keep us posted i hope that uh their covid situation in vietnam uh becomes uh, a lot better and that cases start going down so hopefully you'll be able to write something new to us next time uh and matt any final words thank you so much for joining us by the way
1: uh, no, no final words. Uh, very interesting to talk to you guys. I, I would love to talk uh, a whole evening about Vietnam uh, at yep. some point. Um, and uh, yeah, the the conflict's not going anywhere except it won't be on the above the fold in the New York Times for very much longer. That's the one thing I would say.
0: Yeah. well, thank you both for joining me. Uh, and again, we'll continue to talk about this. I did want to talk about how we discuss these topics as educators Uh, and i think we'll have to table that for another time but i do think that would also be a very fruitful discussion so thank you both for joining us for thank you both for joining me and thank you for a great conversation we will see you next time thanks for listening to in the context of empire